Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Andrew Klein, who's the founder and managing director of Park Lane, a sports-focused investment bank. And Andrew's also a former NFL athlete. He played for the St. Louis Rams, drafted right after they won the world championship. And in this episode, we go through how he started Park Lane, his career in investment banking, and why he wanted to start this investment bank in the first place, his first deal which he attempted with the St. Louis Blues, and how he ended up helping sell Sidney Kimmel's stake in the Miami Heat, how he's built the team at Park Lane, navigating the 2008 financial crisis and how he climbed out of that, what he looks for in kind of high performers on his team, how he manages that as well, and how meditation has had a profound impact on Andrew's life, even going back to his time playing football and now as a businessman as well. As always, the show notes at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here is Andrew Klein, founder and managing director of Park Lane. Andrew, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time coming on the show today. And obviously, we're going to talk about Park Lane and kind of your history and a number of different things you've done. With Park Lane, though, what are you doing with that company today? I know it's been around a while. I'm curious as to what you're kind of involved with in that today. People traditionally know us as a investment bank that that uh, is a focus on sports and also as a merchant bank that has funded a lot of early stage companies, you know, primarily uh West Coast type of companies. But um, when you're an investment bank, <clears throat> excuse me, in the sports world, you know, you help people buy and sell sports teams. You, you help the leagues and various teams with financing. Um, there's a number of things that is very traditional investment banking work. It just we found ourselves doing a lot of it um, in the sports space internationally. And the other thing, too, is when you're funding a lot of early stage companies, you know, when we started, a lot of the guys that we were funding um, didn't have any money to speak of. And then, you know, <laughs> 10 years later, you wake up and they're, they're doing very well for themselves. Not everybody, but a good chunk of them. So, yeah, so we still are that. Our, the, the core of who we are, is, and people know us as an investment bank that, that functions in the sports world and, and a merchant bank that does a lot of early stage deals, primarily consumer, media, and entertainment, or technology deals. Um, about five years ago, one of my friends was leaving McKenzie, and I asked him to look at my company, our company, I should say, and um, and he just said, "Hey, man, you know, you you really you, you when you do a SWAT on Park Lane, you, you know, as a sports-focused investment bank, you're probably you know top three out there, you know, arguably number one in some areas and number two or three in others." And your track record as a merchant bank, finding early stage deals and taking them to market and working with them and raising money for them, that speaks for itself. But he's like, you do not understand your business model. And I said, what do you mean? As a guy who looks at other people's business models all day long, I, you know, I was like, what do you mean? You know? and, <laughs> and he just said, you know, after all these years of, of, you know, every time you sell a sports team, it looks like you, you meet, you know, 10 to 20 new billionaires and, and you stay in touch with me. He goes, so your business isn't really sports investment banking. It's, it's, it's working with these family offices and institutions and high net, high net. So, you know, so I said, okay, great. Well, if that's the case, what, where are we missing the business model? And he said, well, you know, those, those folks invest in real estate and in securities. And so we, that we sat on that for a little while and we thought about it for a while. And we, and, and I had another friend who uh, started a wealth management firm and got access to, um, 
some of the hardest to access funds out there. And once he got those allocations, filled them up, and very shortly afterwards sold his company for you know a quarter billion dollars. Jeez. So yeah, so we when we when we decided to action that information, the way we actioned it was we said, you know, we're not going to be general partners in real estate, and we're going to not we're not going to start a hedge fund. But one thing we're already organically doing is trading secondaries. So we um, we started a division that trades secondaries, which people hear about. You know, before Facebook was public, a lot of people were trading their their private stock yep. individually as a secondary. So we, we, we built that out. That's been great. And now on any given day, we're trading all kinds of those blue chip unicorn names that you guys hear of. But we're buying them. We're, we're, we're helping people buy them. We're helping them sell them. And then we also are taking positions in them ourselves. The other thing that we decided to do because of our friend that started wealth management firm and got those allocations is we said, hey, let's find the best um, real estate managers out there or family offices who have the best track records, but typically don't take any outside capital. And it was a long hunt. And what we found was the people that we wanted to work with didn't need us because they were so successful that they didn't actually need capital. And the people that needed us the most, we didn't want to work with because they didn't have great track records. And and we also found that uh, the funds with the worst track records had the best relationships with investors, because every time they do a new deal, they've got to go meet a bunch of new investors. So they knew everybody where the best funds didn't really know that many people because they had a small group of folks that they've been making a lot of money with. One of our clients had never taken outside capital in 60 years. <laughs> they, you know, they started as a small immigrant family with nothing. And now you know, they've got a multi, multi-billion dollar real estate portfolio just one day at a time, you know, one day, one property, you know, smart investing. So we found a way to, to get those guys to give us allocations and um, and the, the rest is history. You know, we've, we're now very much in the in the business of raising money for uh, real estate invest. You know, not not a lot because there's, these are these groups are unicorns as well. Yeah, we're fighting to that as well. And so now we're you know, we've got this ability to, um, you know, what I'd call several sort of niches that we that we focus on still have the sports investment bank still work with a lot of early stage companies as investors and, and investment bankers, which is, you know, a merchant bank. Um, now we're trading a lot of secondaries and also, you know, deep in the real estate space. So you're not working on that many things, Andrew, is what you're well, saying. Yeah. <laughs> they don't call them banker hours for nothing. Uh, we, uh, luckily, I don't do everything myself. Otherwise, nothing would get done very well. But uh, <laughs> got, a got a great team and uh, yeah, we're, we're, um, we're, 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 we still we still feel like we're a startup after being around for 16 years. So everyone is certainly working hard. <laughs> yeah, and I definitely want to go through a lot of those uh, aspects. One being the team building, but first I want to go back to you mentioned being around 16 years. So in the beginning, why did you decide to start this, and what did it look like originally when you started Park Lane? Yeah. So I I um I always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and um and even while I was in college, uh, I. I, I got the internships that, you know, that, that were probably the dumb jock job, but I, I got them in real estate and just worked really hard because I always wanted to be in real estate. And all through college, I, I interned for a gentleman named Mike Ivey, um, who had a company called Western DevCon, and he was a tremendous real estate developer and a, and a great human being and a wonderful mentor. And, and, um, and he just, he just literally was a, 
you know, found like just, just a wealth of knowledge for me. And when I got done playing, I worked for him. And uh, what's funny is w- while I was working for him, his father, who was like the grandfather everybody wants, pulled me in his office one day and was telling me all his war stories about his days of being an entrepreneur. I said to him, why are you telling me this? I'm, I'm going to work for you guys. And he goes, no, no, you've got the bug. You're going to, you're going to leave one day. You're, you're, you have, I, I can see it. And I'm telling you, it's not easy. And, and um, he told me a story about, uh, by the way, I'm giving you a long story here, but it's, oh, it's a podcast. We can do that. Yeah. Hopefully, <laughs> but he basically told me about before he'd made it, he had this big company that he goes, man, I can't tell you how many Fridays I woke up with a $750,000 payroll and I'd only have $75 in the bank. And I said, well, what do you do? He goes, I never missed a payroll. You always just, you make it work. And I said, well, why are you telling me this? He goes, well, you're, you're going to be an entrepreneur and there's going to be hard times. And I want you to remember this, what I'm telling you right now, when that happens, you're not a bad person. You're just in a bad place and you got to figure out a way to get through it. Otherwise the game is over. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, cool. You know, and I, I didn't really think I was going to be an entrepreneur, but within six months I'd left there and, um, started my own company, which is, uh, I actually started a surf company and then invested in a sports marketing company. And I was really active with both of those. And then I also started doing real estate on my own. And this is, this is like 2000 basically. And, um, so I started investing the, the real estate thing really heated up. So from 2000 to 2005, I was a pure real estate investor. And then the sports marketing company grew and we sold it and the surf company, which was a tiny little thing. Um, uh, there was a lot of liability because there was like training and surf camps for kids and all that stuff around it. And I, and I just didn't like the fact that there was a bunch of kids swimming with sharks every day. So, <laughs> yeah. Like literally, like literally when the day was over, no one got bit by a shark or stepped on a stinger. I was like, oh, okay, good. <laughs> so I sold that. And then in 05, the writing was kind of on the wall to me about with real estate. I didn't have the analytical skills, but I just felt like something was not right. And I didn't feel comfortable that so many people we were selling homes to I knew couldn't afford them. And, you know, I had a lot of friends that were mortgage brokers. And in the early days when everyone was making money, you know, we're high five and having fun. But, you know, a couple of years into that, guys were getting depressed because they're making a lot of money, but they knew they were putting people in mortgages that, um, that, that were going to go south. And so I decided in 05 to just sell everything. And I got out of the real estate business. And right when that happened, the St. Louis blues came for sale and I knew the market really well. And I had a lot of confidence because I'd gone from playing in the NFL to, you know, investing in real estate from the 2000 to 2005 where anyone could have made money. And, um, <laughs> and, and I just said, well, I'm going to buy the St. Louis Blues. So I, lo and behold, I put together a team of guys to buy it. And we worked on it day and night for nine months. And we ended up getting an LOI after those nine months um, signed LOI. And then um, unfortunately, some some things happened and we ended up losing the deal. And so I found myself after these nine months, you know, it was a big loss. Um, and I just was sitting there going like, all right, well, what am I going to do? I, I was planning on, you know, running the St. Louis blues or being a part of this organization. And there was a lot of real estate as part of that deal that I was going to work on. And so I just sort of said to myself, you know, um, I loved the process of buying that team. I had the best time ever working with the bankers and I learned so much from them because my knowledge of real estate finance prior to doing that deal was, was, was fantastic for real estate. Yeah. When you're looking at something as complex as a, you know, a sports team, which, which really actually isn't that complex now that I you know, think about it, but at the time it was really complex and I was mesmerized by the models they'd build and all that stuff. And so I just said, well, 
um, I'm going to, there's a market for this and I'm going to do it because I really love the process of buying this thing. So I'm going to, I'm going to get in business. And so we literally put up a shingle and out of sheer luck, uh, 30 days later, Sidney Kimmel, we, uh, who's a multi, multi-billionaire found, you know, uh, ran Jones, New York, owned a limited interest in the Miami heat <laughs> during like the shack Dwayne Wade days. And he hired us to sell the team. And, uh, you know, as part of that, the, you know, the first time we went to market on anything was selling a interest in Miami heat for Sydney. Kimmel. <laughs> and, you know, like I've been in this long enough, you know, th- there are good days and there are bad days and there are times where you get lucky and, and there's times where you work your brain out and you do everything you can and it doesn't work. But that was one of like, you know, the three or four luckiest things that happened to us because from that day on, it was, you know, it, he sort of anointed us and it was, it was great. And we still had a lot of work to do. And, but, but to like out of the gates, have that be the first deal was, was really, really, really fun. And they ended up winning the championship that year. And, and um, it was, it was awesome and gave us the motivation that we need uh, to, to, to uh, persist through 2008, which was not fun. That was, yeah. <laughs> we can talk oh. about that later, but um, <laughs> that's, that's the extra long story of how it all started. Okay. I love it. There's so much that goes into it, but that's, it's obviously there's a com- complexity to it because of all the different things that you buy a team. And then you had so many different options at that time, it seems like in terms of what you could potentially do more a matter of what you want to pursue and pretty ambitious to try to pursue. Okay, let's try to buy the blues. I mean, as, as a starting point, but then why do you think Sydney chose you for the heat? Um, we knew one of the gentlemen who ran uh, his film company and had a good, a reasonably good relationship with him. And, you know, we just happened to, to be with him and, and, and uh, talking about what we were doing. And he's like, oh, Sydney wants to sell his interest in the heat. And we're like, well, we'll do it for him. And literally 48 hours later, we had a signed engagement. Sydney wired us an engagement fee. And I was just like, this is, and, and it, you know, at the time, at the time, I was like, well, of course this is happening. Because, you know, like to go from the NFL to go to real estate at that time to to launch a new business is like, well, of course, it, you know, like little did I know, little did I know how hard it really was. But, um, you know, it, it was that that's that's how it happened. That's amazing. I mean, timing obviously is, is important in that. But even with that, it obviously took a chance on you early on. But uh, there's a team behind this. Like, who is the team you're working with? How did you find these guys and decide who to work with on on that deal? Yeah, out of the gates, it was just some guys that um, that were the bankers that we hired to help us buy the blues. And then since then, something I'm super proud of is, you know, we've tried to hire guys from other firms and, and sometimes that works. But now um, virtually everyone that works for us started as an intern and virtually everyone that works for us um, is either a former college or professional athlete or, or served at the highest levels of the military, um, not meeting rank, but you know, special operations like Navy SEALs and, and guys that are you know, kind of combat vets. And that's just the culture. You know, it's, we're a team. We want to work as a team. We want to work on challenging stuff. Um, we don't mind getting beat up. We don't mind. We, we like it tough. We like, we like the grind. We, you know what I mean? And we know how yeah. to, we, we're resilient and, and we like, you know, to, to uh, you know, we like to mix it up and we like to, we like to celebrate each other. Did you always think that was going to be, you know, who's going to, who you're going to work with this number of years? I mean, I'm just curious as if you already pre-established, okay, these are the types of guys that I think we want to, we want to have in our squad. I'm just curious as to how you kind of thought through that. 
No, you know, because for undergrad, I went to San Diego State, and uh, which is an amazing place, and I'm so grateful for my time there. And, and uh, if it wasn't for them, I never would have played football or likely gotten a scholarship to play football, um, which I needed. But I, I had a lot of insecurities around, well, I went to San Diego State, and most of the guys in finance are Ivy League guys or you know Stanford yeah. guys. So I had a lot of insecurity. So it, out of the gates, I wanted to just hire Ivy League guys. And, and, um, and but what, what's emerged over time is the guys that really stick, that are part of the culture, are, are just so happened to have, to have been the athletes and the military guys. It's not like we, we select for them. And if somebody walked in that didn't have any of that stuff, we'd be, we are totally open-minded to interviewing them and working with them and all that stuff. It's just that it just seems like the people that stick with us are, have that kind of background. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And from there, then that first deal, obviously starting out the gates with uh, the Miami Heat, it's not a bad start. How did it go from there? How did it grow in terms of how you went about growing the investment bank at at that point in time? Yeah. So, um, you know, we just, when you're small like that and don't have a, a like a high burn, you could do one or two or three deals a year and, and be fine. Yeah, you might not get rich, but you certainly can keep the lights on and 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 slowly but surely start growing the team organically. So we did that, and then in, um, and I don't want to jump ahead too far, but then then yeah, yeah. then eight hit, which is a whole other story. But that that's that's what we we just grew organically early on. We invested everything back into the company. I mean, I didn't pay myself for for years. So wow. Yep. That seems to be a, a trend recently on this podcast. Yeah. A number of people I've talked to recently didn't pay themselves either the first year, the first couple years, uh, really just really in, reinvesting everything back yep. into their own business because they want growth. Uh, yep. And then, you know, to be in a, a solid kind of sustainable place. And I think that's a, a good point. And, you know, we alluded to this already, but we might as well dive in. Oh, eight. I may, you may have heard that year. You may have been around for that. <laughs> Take me through what happened, how you navigated that with, with Park Lane. Yeah. So we, um, we'd been working on four deals for probably call it on a long side, about, I'd say 12 months and then others about eight months. And they were all supposed to close at about the same time. And these are all professional sports teams, sales of, or purchases of four different ones. And it was remarkable and, uh, that we were going to get all these deals closed. And on uh, like on a Friday, Society Generale calls us, who was who had was supposed to underwrite one of the deals, calls and says, "Hey, we're no longer going to be able to underwrite this. We we're supposed to close on like the next week." And we're like, well, "What do you mean? We have a we have a signed doc." And they're like, "Well, we're not going to be able to get it done." And we're like, "Well, we're going to sue." They're like, "Yeah, just wait for the news." <laughs> and lo and behold, you know, the whole bank implodes. And yeah, and, and so we're like, "Well, whatever. There's you know, we still got a couple more deals. We'll get done." And then one by one by one, all of them fell apart. And so, you know, there there was no revenue coming to the company for those 10 months because you don't get paid until you close a deal. And so I remember our offices were in Century City in the Twin Towers. And, and you know, you look down on this courtyard where like CAA is and all that stuff. And, and when I got the call over the course of two or three days, every one of the deals fell apart. And, I, and I, when I got the last call saying that the deal had fallen apart, I remember sitting in the window like, Never, you know, just just as far as business goes, I mean, with life, you can certainly reach lower lows. But as far as business, I never had experienced anything like that. And I just remember sitting in the window going, like looking out the window going, oh, this is how people lose their businesses. Like this, I get it. Now, I guess I've lost my business because I've invested 10 months into the, you know, into my team to get these deals. And, And now they're done. And I just remember sitting there going, damn, I, I. 
like, you know, the, the delta between where we were and where we were going to be was huge. And, uh, and I, and I'm not kidding you. I thought of two things. I thought of, uh, my high school football coach, Carter Pacinger, who just taught me, like, I decide when the game is over, nobody else. And I might be having a bad play or a bad series or a bad game or a bad season, but it only locks in when you give up. And so I remember thinking of that. And I also remember my first time out on a football field in college was a very embarrassing moment. I remember lying on the ground after that embarrassing moment going, well, I can either, you know, be a loser and sort of like give up, or I can tell this story later on as like a moment of triumph. And I'm like, I'm going to tell there's a moment of triumph. And I'm like, all right, I'm not losing my business. So I called the team in and we had a little chat and a couple of guys wanted to know when their bonuses were getting paid. And, Oh, and uh, we kept the guys who had the right mentality and, you know, we had to get rid of the guys who didn't have the right mentality. And we just, you know, we didn't, and I think we only got rid of one or two guys, but, um, but that was it. And then rebuilt from there. And it was probably another two years of not paying myself anything. But what was interesting is out of that, um, there was sort of a war of attrition and a lot of banks went out of business and a lot of teams needed to be sold so that their, their owners could meet liquidity needs. So we actually had sort of a golden era after that. And had we given up, we wouldn't have had that. But the next few years were remarkable because there were there was less competition and there was way more of a demand for the services. So, you know, I, again, I'm sorry about these incredibly long answers, but um, <laughs> no, 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 it's perfect. That, that was the journey. I love it. And it's such a crazy time for everyone back then, especially in your particular industry then. So understanding that and one by one, these deals just evaporate. Yep. At what point did you sign your next deal then? Like actually even, complete complete yeah. your, you know what I mean? I don't even remember. Um, I, it was probably several months. Um, you know, I would say like on the short end, one and a half, two months on the long end, maybe even up to four to six months before we got another mandate. Wow. Yeah. And from that, do you remember like you obviously had to change the team up a bit? How big the team was? Before that, and then after, what happened? And if you don't remember, no big deal. I'm just curious yeah. as to how the impact. You no, know, we weren't big. I mean, we went from like eight guys to six guys, I think, or it, it maybe maybe just one we let go of. But um, and it was simply because they just didn't get it, and also you know sort of performance things, and that that's life. I mean, not everyone yeah work out. Yeah. From that, then, so you make it through that incredibly difficult time and I'm sure there's, there's uncertainty, there's doubt, et cetera, but you, you know that you have to keep going. So you keep going, you keep the lights on, et cetera. From that then in this kind of golden age after that, how did that go? how did you kind of capitalize on the opportunity of, like you said, so many sports teams need to be sold or different deals need to be made. How do you kind of capitalize on that? Understanding that, okay, we are around, we made it through this. Now it's go time. Take me through that. I think we just stayed busy. You know, we just, we, uh, we still worked very long hours and it was all just a matter of calling everyone we knew, seeing if they needed any help, you know, going to every conference, every event, you know, just, this was pre kids in my life. So I, and my wife was an attorney that was working, you know, 29 hours a day. So Jeez. I could just work, I just worked. I just literally like seven days a week, all of us, we just worked. And, um, I can't tell you that that work generated the deals. I think every one of them were referrals that came in, but you know, you, you were sort of like blinded by the light of our own faith that was going to work. And the only thing that we could do was just continue to push ahead. So. Yeah. It's like controlling what you can control as they always say in yeah. sports as well. You know, yeah. that's what you control is doing the work. And if the deals come through referrals, like you still have to 
try, you're trying yeah. to do it out, outbound or whatever it may be. Yeah. And you go through that, that point. I know you mentioned that, you know, it was five years ago that you kind of shifted the business model, but in between that point in time, so you have 2008, which is which is rough. Then a number of years where things are going well. How then? I know you already mentioned kind of how this happened five years ago, but what did it actually take to kind of switch in that five years ago when uh, you kind of evolved the business a little bit more? How did that switch actually take place? You know, there's not a lot of us. We don't, you know, we don't have like a board. We're just all the guys that that are the the investment professionals at our shop. You know. Um, have a very uh, uh, loud and respected voice at the company. And so when we just, we, we, you know, we, we just sat down and thought about it. And then when we decided to do it, it was like the next day we were in that business and that was it. One thing I'm wondering about as well with just, you mentioning kind of the team being a lot of ex athletes, a lot of uh, ex military, et cetera. And that's some very hard charging, ambitious driven people. I imagine how do you, as a leader, lead that group of people, uh, deal with the, the ambition, the drive, the competitiveness of that in, in a positive way. How do you go about that, Andrew? Um, I'll preface this by saying this. I still have a lot of work to do to, as being a leader. You know, I, I was always, when I, when I played sports, um, the guy that was, was happy to just be, you know, no, I was an O-lineman. So I was happy to do my job. I only wanted the respect of the guys around me. Yeah, and, and there was some rah-rah in me, but you know, I I wasn't the guy that was you know I, that was that was always you know. There's some guys that were just natural-born leaders, and I've had to work at it quite a bit, both management and leadership. Um, and so what I'd say is, in the early days, I think people just latched onto the passion that I had, and they wanted to be on that ride, and it was exciting and everything. Now with the with the team that we have, the most the, the most important thing. The most important thing is trust. You know, they have to trust. We all have to trust each other. So when I'm really thinking about like leadership and management, it's like, you know, never do anything to get your, your, your team or your clients to lose trust in you because then it's all done. And if somebody loses trust in me or I lose trust in them, then one of us has to go because it just doesn't work anymore. Um, so number, you know, number one is, is just that trust factor. And then, you know, having integrity in, in what you're doing and, you know, some of the deals we take to market, we fail on and it doesn't happen all the time, but when it happens, it is, it is miserable. It's like, it's terrible because, you know, our job is to add value. And, um, yeah. and so, you know, I remember in our early days, we took a deal to the market and we just, we just, it just didn't work. And, um, I didn't tell anyone I was going to do this, but we had an update call with the clients and I just apologized. I said, guys, listen, we, you know, you engaged us. We thought we could do X, Y, and Z. We were not able to. And as a result, we're going to refund your money. And, it, you know, and, and and years later, one of our guys was telling a story about our company. And he mentioned that that happened and that that meant a lot to him because, you know, there's times where you can take a deal to the market and the market is real. And if you brought it to the entire market um, and they say, no, you've actually done your job. It's not our job to actually get companies funded. It's our job to properly take them to the market and let the market react. But on this this one particular deal I was talking about, every one of the people that we thought we would be able to bring it to just wasn't willing to look at it. So we never even gave it a proper look at the market. And we refunded the clients and apologized and moved on. And we're still friends with those guys this day. But, you know, having that kind of core integrity, you as a leader and making sure your team has it. Um, and then what it's, what it's matriculated into now is, you know, I, everyone on my team, and this is so cliche, but I mean, you know, we have guys that are like, you know, 
you know, Yale Road scholars and yeah. brilliant guys, right, on our on our team. And they're way smarter than I am, and they're way more educated than I am. And and, uh, and and you know, and so what I need to do every day is just think about how I'm creating an environment where they can actually be be at their best. And the one thing that I've taught, you know, that, that we like sort of like just to imprint to our team is we we don't want to have any kind of a like sort of cancerous culture or smack talking culture and, and stupid competitiveness between each other. So we identify our weaknesses. Like everyone knows what my weaknesses are and everyone knows what my strengths are. And just like when I played O-line, like if the, if the guy next to me had an issue with a certain kind of pass rusher, I was there for him and I was more concerned that he was okay than myself. And so what we've really preached and I'm so proud of it is I know everybody's strength and weakness on my team. We celebrate identifying those weaknesses so that we can fill in those gaps. And if, and if, if one of our guys is with me and knows that I have this, you know, gap in my capability, it's his job to jump in there and fill it. It's not his job to go talk to the rest of the team about what a bozo I am. Cause I don't know how to do it. <laughs> right. And that, that's yeah. amazing. And then, you know, the best part of leadership is just hire good people and get out of their way. You know I mean? It's just so, again, it's so cliche, but I mean, as I'm getting older, I'm realizing a lot of those say, sayings are around for a reason. You know, it's like teamwork, integrity, like that, that stuff, you, you nail that. You have to, have, you know, it's already, it's already, you know, won. Yeah. And on that note as well, I mean, they're, they're cliches for a reason, right? I mean, there's a reason why that again and again, we hear these same things. And yep. I, when I hear that, it's, it's, it's like, okay, well maybe we should like do them then, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's, yep. it's one thing to hear and be like, oh, it's such a, such a cliche, but like, if it's true and it's useful, yep. then, then why not go to it? And then on that same note of, you mentioned with kind of the leadership management side of things and needing to improve. And I think obviously everyone needs to improve and kind of always work on that. What have you done or what's been helpful for you to, to improve as a leader or a manager? Like what has, whether it be books or getting a coach or I'm just curious what's maybe been helpful for, for you personally on that. I think a lot of it is just time and like, you know, humility, as I kind of alluded to early on, like, you know, I don't think I was born somebody who wasn't humble, but when you, you know, you, like when you go play, like I got drafted by the St. Louis Rams and we played in the Super Bowl, right? Like, and, and, and I think there were some things in my life that, that um, gave me a bit of like an entitled, like entitlement in the, in the sense that like, I, I thought that if I did something, I was going to be successful at it. And so when I finally got, you know, my ass whooped a little bit and, you know, got a bit more humble, um, I think that was really, really, really important to, to develop that sort of humility and empathy and know that like the guys on my team aren't just there so we can be successful. Like the guys on my team have families and they have families and they have. And so, you know, the, while it was tough to, you know, sometimes go through the gauntlet of building a business and it still is tough. um, The greatest thing that came from it is not any financial success. It's not any accolades. It is just being humbled by the experience and be able to connect with my friends, my clients, my teammates, my family, everybody at a much more, um, you know, sort of like with much more humility and empathy. And I'm not saying that to be like cheesy or because it's like a, a buzzword now. It is literally when you go through this ringer and you have the disease of being an entrepreneur and you have to go through the impossibilities that sometimes you face as an entrepreneur. If you don't become humble, then something there's something wrong there so (laughs) (laughs) well yeah and i think it's one of those things where being just being in the game for 
so many years already. I mean, you have those experiences. And when I talk to entrepreneurs that are farther along and they've, you know, maybe already raised like a series B or like, you know, they've been around, they've had their startup for years and years already. It's, it is a lot different than a lot of the founders that are maybe of just getting started or maybe just raised their first kind of round of capital and everything. And uh, there's a different level of understanding how to lead, how, you know, how to approach problems at that point. They've probably had way more meetings with their investors. And a lot of these people, you know, I've had some people on recently who have, you know, the top investors in the world in terms of venture capital, having like Andreessen mm-hmm. Horowitz is on their cap table or having, mm-hmm. having like first round. And, you know, you learn so much from that as a founder, when you have those people around you who have been through this already, um, there's so much to be learned from that. And, yeah. and one of the things I'm, I'm curious about just be, just in terms of looking at your business, obviously you're involved in a number of different things that we've we've mentioned already. But just in terms of new opportunities, you mentioned the real estate thing is kind of recently in terms of um, investing a fund with that. But how do you look at just new opportunities, new ways of expanding your business? How do you evaluate them, or what are you looking for from new opportunities? You know, it's part art, part science. So. Sean Clemens from our team is a partner. He's been with us for 12 years, literally started as an intern. Uh, he's just one of the smartest people I've ever met. And he's very um, analytical. And so he's put together this algorithm and this model that we use to look at companies. And it spits out a number that is that is so accurate when we look when we sort of like look back on companies that it's amazing. So that's the science of it. The art of it is, you know, the longer you do something, the more intuition you develop and the more you, you can sort of like use your gut to um, to analyze things. And so, you know, while Sean and others on our team are taking an analytical approach, there's others of us in there that are that are looking the person in the eyes and, you know, and really sizing them up as a human being. And, you know, we've seen amazing companies where you know, the founder comes in and, and there's just one or two glitches where we're like, man, this can be an issue later on. And we just, we just walk, we can't, we can't do them. And it's, you know, our, 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 our models spit out that it's a home run, but our read of the human being is just like, we don't want to work with this person. We would never introduce them to our, you know, super valued investors that we have developed, you know, relationships with over years. And so, you know, it's just a mix of, of, of both the art and the science. And it takes, the art and science take years and years and years of iterating and really deep processing to, to, to develop, you know, good, really like tangible, you know, sort of skills around and tools around both. With your experience as well in the last number of years, I'd be curious to know, how do you manage your time? How do you decide on, on schedule and being productive? I mean, obviously it can be long hours, but I mean, literally, I'm wondering what, what like a schedule would be for you. It could be different, obviously, depending on the deals and the works yeah. and the time, but I'm curious. Yeah, I read like every book in the world on that, and none of it worked. And then there's a book called by uh, Keller, um, I think it's Keller, called The One Thing, um, yep. which talks about, you know, make the, make the most important thing the most important thing, but also prioritize. So he actually schedules his workouts, and his vacation time before anything else. And then everything else fills in. And the saying in that book is, you know, on every day you need to ask yourself this a bunch of times, what's the one thing that I, that I can do such by doing it, everything else is, you know, totally irrelevant or, you know, <laughs> and if you think about what that thing is and you just focus on that, that helps. But what I do is my, in my schedule, you know, I work out with a trainer and I, and I refuse to not see my family. So that all gets scheduled first and then everything else, gets prioritized around it. And I built all these little tools that I use to, to make sure I'm on 
track every day and, and, and managing stuff. But I got to tell you, I mean, I still work, you know, I, lots of times, 18 hour days and lots of times on weekends and stuff. It's just that I don't feel guilty about it because I make sure I see my kids and get some quality time. And I, you know, and I stay in shape and all that good stuff too. But, but it's, it's not easy, man. It's just not, <laughs> not easy. So yeah. What are some of those tools? Yeah, I have to ask. What are some of those tools, if you don't mind sharing? I I just came up with a checklist every day. So I I medit I've meditated since college every day. So I I have my checklist on meditation. There's usually one major important thing I need to work on. So that's on my checklist. I'd literally go down this checklist every day. Um, I have this this other list of things that I need to look at. So I need to look at like what our pipeline looks at, what our strategy for a company is, um, my checklists of tasks what I need to be doing for clients. I scan my email. I actually then ask myself that question. What's the most important, you know, what's the one thing I can be doing? And then I schedule my day from there. And then the next thing from there is I manage my team. So instead of working on my stuff, I go right to, you know, is there anything that any of my team needs from me? Um, and, and, and quite frankly, that's still an area where I'm still lacking it. There's a lot of times where, I'll ask somebody for something They're like, oh, I already emailed it to you. Our rule at the firm is, is answer your, your team's emails before you answer your own. So you're not a bottleneck for them. If I, have a, if I have a client email, sometimes it just, I still in my mind, I'm like, well, that takes precedence. So the managing the team at that moment still needs to work on. It. And then I literally have, you know, I go through my list again and then, uh, you know, just, I can read all the things, but that's, it's literally a checklist of that stuff. And, and then at the end of the week, I, I've, I'd look at, you know, and then the next day I, I looked at what I did and didn't do. And if I didn't do something, I'll try to go start with that so I can get it completed. So nothing just lingers, but I do that every day. That book is in front of me right now. I, um, <laughs> you know, and it's been great having that analog. I'm a very digital paperless kind of guy, but yeah. having this analog thing in front of me is actually proved to be really effective. Yeah, the paper and pen can be pretty powerful. Yeah, <laughs> I still have, I still use like a legal pad for my like to do list and how I kind of take notes on certain things that I can't, I can't stop that. I've, I've tried to be all digital before. I'm like, oh yeah, this is like, this is 2020. Like, of course you could be all digital. But yeah. for some reason, I still come back to that over and over again, uh, which yeah. is crazy. You can't, like, you can bury the digital stuff. You can like bury, like, you can bury it and it's not in your face. If you've written it down, it's almost like you've written it in blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And I think what you mentioned with the one thing as well reminds me of that visual of this this jar where he puts the big rocks in first and then he puts the sand and then he puts the water. And if you put the big rocks in first, you have room for everything. Yep. If you put the, the sand around and then the water, well, if you try to switch that up, it doesn't all fit. Yeah. And so I've always kind of had that visual in my head. I don't know when I saw that YouTube video, but I've had that visual in my head for years. And that's always kind of what's like driven right. me in terms of thinking about the day. It's like, oh, big rocks first, yep. then you can fit everything else around it. Another, so another, yeah, another cliche that works, right? <laughs> exactly. And and one of the things I'm I'm really wondering about, just from looking back at your journey and, and thinking about, you know, start this company in 2005, been through, well, a shitstorm really uh, in 2008 and even with COVID now, which we haven't even talked about. But one of the things I, I want to know is what fuels you today? What are you driven by today, Andrew? You know, I don't know. I, I just, um, I you know, there's always been a drive there. And um, there's always been a light at the end of the tunnel. I think what probably fuels me the most is, um, you know, I'm an O-lineman, right? And, and O-linemen aren't about glory. They, they say of O-linemen, we're mushrooms. 
because you can, you can put us in the dark and feed us shit and we'll grow, right? <laughs> and, and I got so much pride and joy out of, you know, giving everything I had, blocking for my running backs so they could score touchdowns or, you know, blocking for a quarterback so they could score touchdowns. And I never needed, like, I needed the accolades of the guys around me. That's all I cared about. But um, I think the two things are, and I'm sorry if this sounds cheesy because it probably is cheesy what I'm about to say. But, <laughs> That's all good. But, you know, I I really get a lot of joy out of, you know, having clients that we really, you know, like and respect and delivering value for them. And then, like I said, you know, I want to build, you know, we're, we're building something at Park Lane where, you know, we, we can give some folks a chance in finance that wouldn't always have a chance um, and that they can, you know, the sky's the limit for them. And, and I love more than anything, my favorite thing at our company is when somebody's worked really hard on something and we can like celebrate that win and give them a bonus check. And, and it's less about, I mean, you know, the money is, is an important factor in it because that's just lifeblood. Right. But of course it's just, it's, you know, it's again, cheesy. I've just wanted to recreate my O-line from, from, um, you know, from back in those old days where we're like, we, we worked hard together. We had very difficult challenges. We, you know, played teams at times where the other guys were monsters and, and, uh, <laughs> and I, and we all knew, knew everything about each other and were there to play as one unit. And I've always just tried to rebuild that. And I think that that more than anything is what the guys on our, you know, the people, um, on our team really gravitates towards. Yeah, and I find that fascinating, especially when talking to people that are a little bit farther along in their career, just having done it for a number of years running businesses and had, you know, a fair amount of success. It's like what keeps you going? Because there's you could in theory you could do something else. You there's opportunity cost for everything, right? I mean, there's an opportunity cost for you running this business of whatever else that time can be spent on, which is anything yeah. else. And even once you've had some success and everything too, it's like, well, I mean, you don't not necessarily just sit on your laurels, rest on your laurels per se, like yep. finding something else to do. So I find it fascinating to hear why people keep going. And it is some type of meaning, some type of purpose you need in uh, some capacity and things you also just enjoy yeah. uh, as you kind of continue on. And, and I know we haven't talked about this yet, so I want to. Uh, you were at San Diego State playing football uh, mm -hmm. with Greg. <laughs> yeah. yep. props, to, props to Greg. And you get drafted by the Rams after they win the championship. Mm -hmm. Take me through that experience, especially in the early days. Were you thinking there? How was it? It was amazing. It was it was magical, and it, it was magical because I I loved that game, you know, more than I can express, and it also did more for me than I can tell you. I mean, it was like, you know, a lot of guys play that game because there's nothing else. There's no other out, and I, you know, I was my family was in a situation where it was like it was that or, you know, go get a job at you know, there was no paying for college. So, yeah. Um, so it was a, it was a really, you know, it was, it was really amazing to, you know, been honing a skill like that for that long and to be able to, to challenge yourself on a daily basis with, with those guys. And, and, um, you know, to play with Marshall Falk and Kurt Warner and Orlando Pace and all those guys, it was incredible. Now, unfortunately, you know, they call it NFL not for long because, not, you know, most guys don't last very long. And I got really injured, you know, in my early days and, and had to hang up the cleats. But um, I'll never, you know, I'm, I'll never stop being incredibly grateful for that, the opportunity just to be there and, and uh, have, have walked on, you know, field and, and gone to battle with, with 
you know, everyone from high school to college to the NFL. I mean, you know, it's just incredible, incredible memories. Obviously from then you've created a number of businesses, you've done a lot since then, but in that time as well, did you know, I mean, obviously you're only you're thinking about football, but how much were you thinking about even in the early days, like, you know, getting involved in companies, building businesses, investing in, investing in real estate, for instance, those types of things while you're with the Rams? So when I was a little kid, my dad um, told my brother and myself, and I'm, I'll never forget it, and he would tell us a lot, but it started kind of in the fourth grade. He would say, Andrew's going to play strong guard in the NFL, and, and Matt, who's my brother, is going to be one of the top litigators in the country. And I knew it. I knew it. I knew that was going to happen. I didn't start playing football until high school, but I just knew – I remember the first day I played high school football, I remember I came home and I told my mom and my brother, I'm like, guys, we're good. I'm going to play. I, I really am good at this game. The first, <laughs> this is the first time I'd ever put on pads. So I'm really good at this game. I'm going to get a college scholarship and I'm going to play in the NFL. And they looked at me kind of like I was crazy, but I think they also knew that like I was serious. My brother tells that story all the time. And, uh, you know, my brother is uh, one of the top litigators in the country. He's been on a team that is one number one litigation team, you know, 10, I know of 10 years at least. And, you know, he's, he defended Jeff Skilling from Enron. He's tried stuff for the Supreme Court. He's written bills, um, you know, for, for former President Obama. You know, I mean, he's, he's, a, uh, he's, he's a force to be reckoned with there. And it's amazing my dad, like, knew that. And so, but I also knew, too, that, like, when that was done, I wanted to go into business. And I've never ever lost sight of that. And I think like, you know, the people are listening to this podcast probably to learn some things. I, I personally think like, if you met me, most people who meet me and they hear that I played in the NFL, they scratch their heads and they think at best I was a kicker. Um, <laughs> at best. And I still don't think that that's actually a position in football, but uh, <laughs> so that's the next hour. That's, so that's, that's our, part yeah. two. <laughs> So that's really offensive when people call me that, but you know, at least quarterback. But but um, but I I truly believe I truly believe that if you really want to do something special, you have to be obsessed with it. And from you know from the day I put my football pads on it, all through high school, I would think about it twenty four seven. And then in college, Damon Baldwin, who's a one of the best online coaches to live, um, noticed that there was a glitch with my mental performance and taught me how to meditate. And, and that was a miracle and magical. And I was able to go into a deep meditative state twice a day and envision what I wanted to do in the field. And I went from like a C player to an A-plus player capable of playing the NFL. And I've noticed once I can lock something in my brain and start meditating on it and, um, you know, visualizing it, that it, it to, you know, make it a reality, it just happens much quicker. So if, like, if I could leave anyone with a business lesson is like, you have to trust and believe in something if you're looking, you know, to, for, for the big goal so deeply and, and it, visualize it, smell it, taste it. It's already happened. And you're just, you know, you're almost like waiting. You're like just waiting for it to actually manifest itself. And then you just go work relentlessly until it happens. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's what I, I mean, if, if you really want my takeaway, I'm sure other people have, very different things. But to, to me, in my experience, that's been the biggest thing that's ever happened. I mean, I will tell you, I never would have played in the NFL ever, ever, ever if it wasn't for, you know, Coach Baldwin doing the meditation stuff. He also did all the technical stuff and everything else, but it was teaching me how to visualize and, and do that that was the most powerful. 
Well, the mental side of it and the, the psychology, I've talked to, I think it was Aman Abouzid, who's the co-founder of uh, Incredible Health, and they've raised like a Series A, been really successful. And she said, you know, managing your psychology as a founder is everything. Yeah. Um, you know, your own your own internal game, that, that's how you really succeed because everything is on, on your shoulders. And as you mentioned, like that allowed you to really get to the next level yeah. uh, in your playing career is the mental edge. And if you look at now, you have like LeBron James with Calm and Meditation and the, the collaboration, other people you're seeing really meditate and do more with that. I remember, I think it was Ray Dalio who mentioned meditation yep. being so big with him at Bridgewater. And I saw him at, at Summit in downtown Los Angeles last year and talked more about that. And just the power of managing your own mental state is yep. so important and it really can't be emphasized enough. Andrew, yep. this has been a lot of fun. I have a thousand more questions, but we're out of time. Where can people go to learn more about Park Lane and connect with you if they would like to as well? Yeah, you know, we're, we're uh, like most investment banks, we're not, we're behind the scenes group. So, I mean, we've got the website PRKLN, Park Lane, abbreviated PRKLN. Yep. And then there's a, you know, a number of white papers we've put out. If you do a Google search, you can find them and, and uh, other interviews and stuff. But we're not like a consumer facing business. So there's not a ton of yeah. out there on us. Totally. But everyone, if you're interested, check out, check them out. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Hey, thanks so much for having me and, and congratulations on all you've built and all you're doing as well. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.